This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Ewa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over and Beth Wynn. Oh man, this book. I cannot wait for you guys to experience this book. It is a memoir and I'm going to give you the world's worst earworm because Beth gave me the world's worst earworm. It's Owner of a Lonely Heart. And, you know, if you want to go listen to some yes right now, you can do that too. But more importantly, we're going to be talking about the language of motherhood and refugee status and all sorts of stuff and names. Man, we are going to talk a lot about names. But Beth, it's really good to see you. Thank you. For, thank you. Thank you for being on the show. Oh, thank you for having me here. So I feel like you have been working on this book for a while. Some pieces of the book have been published previously, but this memoir as a whole, I just, I feel like you've been walking around, even as you wrote, you know, Short Girls and even as Pioneer Girl came out, this really feels like a direct descendant from Stealing Buddha's Dinner. Yeah, Stealing Buddha's Dinner was my first book, and mm-hmm. that was a memoir, and that was published 15 years ago. I I did that math, and I did not like that math. I was like, what do you mean this book is 15 <laughs> years old? I don't understand. <laughs> it was sort of, it still is sort of horrifying to think that that long ago. But the sort of follow-up to it, to me, was thinking about how we change all the time as people and as writers. So I was carrying this book, Owner of a Lonely Heart, in my mind. And every time I would turn to it, I would change it and revise it because I had, you know, become a slightly different person after another year of living. This book became about a little bit more about time and about the strangeness of dealing with time. And part of it is during the pandemic, which is also very weird in terms of our relationship with time. And I think, too, I mean, books are really such a great way to experience shifts in time like think about a novel right that's the exact kind of purpose of the book is to watch the evolution of time so the idea of doing it in a memoir and you do you do go back to your childhood you came to the states as a teeny tiny baby and honestly have no memory of living anywhere else but when we're asian american lots of people have lots of feelings about our identities and and what other means. And we're kind of, you know, on the front lines of that. But one of the things I've always loved about reading you is that you really wanted to be part of your community in Michigan, right? Like Toll House Cookies and Twinkies and like all of it. And it's such a different approach, right? To what some people think of as immigrant writing. And I'm like, well, it's not immigrant writing. It's American writing because you're American. And I kind of want to start there because the language doesn't always serve us. And you have some very clever ways of dealing with it in this new book. Well, I grew up feeling so American at the Mm -hmm. same time that I grew up feeling not American because my family had come to the United States as refugees when I was a baby. But I also felt very not American because people would always perceive me as being not American. They would always think of me as being Asian. And so it was a strange place to live in the Midwest, growing up, you know, feeling one way, but being perceived in another way. And that was the 1980s, which was a very assimilationist time to be growing up. And all the messages were just, just fit in, fit in. It's, It's a very different landscape now. And so for me, it's a lot of reckoning with that mode of growing up versus what 
we know now. Yeah, and I mean, also the 80s, the Japanese were doing very well financially, so they were buying a lot of real estate in the United States. There were a lot of car companies coming to the States and opening factories. You know, Japanese companies were buying American companies, and it was all a little complicated. And then, of course, we have Vincent Chin and his murder, and that sets off a whole new trail. And it is, I mean, technically a long time ago, and yeah, we are moving forward, but kind of still feels like yesterday in a lot of ways when we see these repeats, right? Like we just saw it with COVID and the whole idea of this China virus. And it's like, hi, sorry, what? It's been a wild few years. But when did you really start thinking this needed to be a book? I mean, it's one thing to write an essay here or there. You're clearly doing a lot of research. You're also teaching. Like you have a lot going on and yet this book is still constructing itself in the midst of all of this change. I think everything you were just saying about how Asian Americans are perceived and how the, the language racism against mm. Asians kind of goes away, but it comes back quickly. Right. Those were things that have been in my mind. Absolutely. For, for all these years. And while I was writing these sort of separate essays, I was thinking about how they would become a book. And I didn't really know, actually. I, it just sort of was like, I know this is going to be something, but I don't know what it is yet. And I couldn't make it happen. And I, I'm not I'm not somebody who thinks that, you know, you can't actually make the narrative happen. I feel like you, I mean, technically you can, but I think in uh, nonfiction, sometimes it's there or it's not there and we have to sort of figure our way through it. And it, for me, it was during the pandemic that I figured it out. And it was quite late in the <laughs> in the editing process and the revision process where I was thinking about what is what is the thing that's on my mind that I have been essentially avoiding? Because you know, writing nonfiction is uh, you know, a lot of it is about avoidance. <laughs> and, uh, for real, a lot of writing, I guess, in general is about avoidance. The thing that I was avoiding is sort of was the realization that over the course of my adult life, you know, my conscious life that I had spent less than 24 hours total with my mother. Yeah. And you're a mom now, right? You're, yes. I mean, your boys are in the double digits, but not high double yes. digits. You're still actively momming. They are not fully yes. <laughs> running around like, doing their own thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you are super in mom mode, but that's also a big part of this book and you're sort of reconciling being a mom with not, and your stepmother was around and, you know, clearly she appears in this book and she's appeared in stealing Buddhist dinner and whatnot, but it's such a primal relationship. Right. And I mean, countless books have been written. Countless books will be written about the mother daughter relationship. And I just kind of want to start there because I think I didn't realize when I was reading Stealing Buddha's Dinner a million years ago, because 15 years, holy crap. I didn't realize she was your stepmom somehow. And I, like, you talk about her and I'm just like, oh, I guess in Texas, whatever. But like, you had your family, right? Yeah. So can we talk about your mom and and how you guys ended up separated? Because I was so deep in the story that I didn't process your stepmom being your stepmom, I think. Yeah, the, probably the, one of the central stories of my life is the fact that when my family, when we left Vietnam as refugees, and I was a baby, that my mother stayed in Vietnam. She didn't come with us. And so I ended up not meeting her until I was, you know, 19 years old. 
I grew up with a stepmom who I, you know, she's always been basically always been my stepmom since I was three. And I call her mom and I, she's my mom and I was grandmother Noi there. So I didn't lack mother figures and I was always well taken care of in terms of having mothers. I had a very strong, and I still have a very strong relationship with my stepmom. Um, I call her mom. I always have. And, you know, at the same time, I think when I was writing Stealing Buddha's Dinner, I was not, being that was 15 years ago, I was not ready to write about my birth mother, you know, my biological mother, and the fact that I just didn't really have her in my life. She's in there, you know, she's in that book. It's, it's her story is part of the narrative of the whole book, but she's not the, the central figure, not the central concern. And it's been very fascinating for me in terms of the whole writing process of Owner of a Lonely Heart to figure out that process of what we are actually ready to write about. Okay. And how that is part of craft as well, is figuring that out. Like what, what am I supposed to write now? What am I supposed to maybe hold on for later? Yeah. And because, you know, we're not actually writing a confessional or we shouldn't be. You know, we're, we're trying to understand. And we're not always prepared or ready to understand at every moment in our writing process. So you mentioned a few minutes ago that it was really late into the process on this book, that you were in fact in very late stage edits and suddenly you understand what is happening here. Can we talk about that shift from what you had? We don't have to go into like obvious details and whatnot, because also there's so much that happens for you, to you, with you in this book that i really would like to stay spoiler free, but I love the idea that somehow, you know, right, when you've got the thing and you're working on this thing, and then suddenly this thing needs to shift, no matter how late it is. So can we talk about that process? Yeah, it was, I was writing an email about the manuscript to my agent. And it was seriously, (laughs) while I was writing that email, it occurred to me, and I wrote to her and I said, I just realized but during mm-hmm. this, I just realized that, you know, over the course of my life, I basically have spent less than 24 hours with my mother. Right, right. And that became this conversation that made me realize this is the narrative arc of the book. Okay. And okay. that is now my task to recount those hours that I had spent with my mother. I have to say, hearing you say that and having read the book, I'm like, wait a minute, that it's such a strong spine that the idea of you figuring it out sort of late in the game is wild to me. I'm just like, well, of course, why wouldn't you like it's that organic? No, it's really I mean, it's kind of fun to hear this because I do think like there's that moment where where there's a moment where your mom is at Foxwoods. And I was like, of all the places. okay, I get it. Yeah, she, it, but she, like she likes Foxwood. Okay, not what I was expecting. Like you know, mom was you know off doing something, but Foxwoods. Okay, Foxwoods. Yeah, sometimes you just have to go to Foxwoods. Uh, what apparently, I mean. yes. <laughs> there are buses. There are buses from both yeah. New York and Boston. Yeah, exactly. For that set to do, and it's funny. You have a point. Your older sister on shows up in this book again too. She has a moment though where she asks you. And I'm paraphrasing her poorly for a second, but she has a moment where she asks you, she's like, why do you keep chasing this? Why do you keep trying? And you're like, well, I suppose I shouldn't have to put you in my narrative, right? Mm -hmm. Which is what's making me think about 
you because you you and your sister are close like you have a nice relation like all of this stuff and yet you're like hmm maybe I shouldn't maybe you aren't part of this narrative and I love that moment because you guys share so much right and here you are finally saying huh huh okay so does that change the writing too though I mean when you realize that you do have to put yourself a little bit more out there than you might have otherwise chosen to do. I mean, you can't really, can't drag your sister in as much, maybe. <laughs> it is a very strange thing, writing nonfiction, because you're not just writing about yourself. You're actually writing about lots of people all the time. And so every writer of nonfiction has a different approach in terms of getting permission or running work by other people, uh, t- you know, talking to them about it. And I think that that sort of ethical process is important. You know, I gave this manuscript to my sister to read. Um, before it was published and we've talked about it and everything. And it's important to me because we're close and she's the person who's had the same experiences. But at the same time, yes, yeah, like I can't make someone be part of the narrative when they don't want to be. And so that was a big sort of global thought process I had about the book. That's why I don't really use people's names in the book. I just deliberately. And I was using a lot of phrasing like I, you know, I, I think, or I recall, I remember purposely to sort of call attention to the fact that this is hazy. The looking back is not easy and it's not necessarily accurate. Like what I think now is not what I thought 15 years ago. I have a younger brother and occasionally he and I will do the, do you remember? And there've been times (laughs) where I've looked at him and been like, dude, I have no idea what you're talking about. And he'll do the same to me. I'm like, what? You don't remember that? And I'm like, nope. Like same idea. Yeah, exactly. Same parents. Same house, same high school, even just a few years yes. apart. Like, no, yeah, yeah I got nothing. <laughs> yeah. Because got nothing. Perspective, perspective is so individual. Right. So my perspective on, you know, how I grew up is completely different from my sister's mm-hmm. perspective and her experience. And it's, um, it is a, a strange reckoning, I think, that nonfiction writers, maybe all writers have to have to understand that the only perspective we can really go with is our own. It's a weird way to create intimacy with the reader, to have to put yourself out there the way you do when you're writing a memoir. I mean, even when you're saying, I think I recall, it's still on you. The onus is still on you, right? The onus is on you to create the voice. The onus is on you to connect with the reader. The reader is always going to bring their own opinion and their own experience to what they're reading, right? And it's your life. I mean, that's got to be a little trippy. That is the that is the peril of writing nonfiction. and. Why we do it <laughs> is like another issue. But why does anyone, but everyone's doing it. You know, like everyone is writing nonfiction. And I love, love teaching nonfiction. It's probably my favorite thing to teach because it is transformative over and over. Like I love, of course, I love teaching fiction too. I love writing fiction. I love reading fiction especially. But the transformation that can happen when we give ourselves permission or somebody else gives us permission just to say what actually happened and save us years. Yeah. Shame is part of your story. I mean, you have some stuff that you're talking about that you definitely did not have language for previously, or your perspective has shifted. And, you know, part of that is the cultural stuff that we bring to parenthood, motherhood, 
what have you. Um, and part of that is also like, where do you fit in terms of a class structure, right? Like, I mean, your parents had some struggles early on. Um, although it sounds like your dad has finally gotten his, the flooring's in the house, right? Like your dad is a handy dude, but also, you know, I'm also kind of fond of your dad, even though I've never met him because we have the same taste in movies. Your dad and I have the same taste in movies. Like I, I have not watched the Rambo movies. Like I do have, there's a line in the sand, but like you're writing about Die Hard 3 and I'm like, yep, seen that more than once. Like actively watch, not accidentally found it on a plane, like actively watch. Get chose to watch Die Hard 3 with a bit. Yes, that's where I am. I mean, <laughs> we got we to gotta do what we got to do, but I mean, it becomes a language for your dad, right? Those movies yeah. become language for your dad and you're struggling sort of with your dad's place in the world. Your dad's struggling with his place in the world, right? Like, how do I make a living? How do I take care of my family? How do I, and action movies actually make things a little easier for him. And I just, I think that's a really great, generous moment for you guys to have. Like here you are saying, well, I went back and watched Paper Moon and oh yeah, it doesn't hold up. <laughs> like these things that we revisit, right? Where we think, oh, I know exactly where this is going. And it's like, actually, maybe I just want to watch Die Hard 3. Right. That to me is part of the joy, strangeness, and wonder of memoir, which is, it is all about looking back and sort of taking ourselves to task and thinking about, oh, who was I at age, you know, 15 or 18 or 25 with my relationships with my family? And then thinking about it from the perspective of now. The writer Philip Lopate talks a lot about, has a great essay about double perspective. And it's a concept I use a lot of my classes, the sense that when we're writing, we're always inhabiting two selves, the the now self writing, and then the former self. And that was something that I was thinking about a lot when I was writing this book of how to be in the place I am right now, actively looking back, trying to understand former self and who my dad was and who my family members were back then. And how, when the more I look back, the more I realize, yeah, okay, we behaved badly many times. There was a lot of dysfunction. There was a lot of trauma that we couldn't express except through anger. But I can understand that now. I didn't understand it then, but I can understand that now. And that is something that I need to understand. What are some of the other essays you use in your nonfiction class? Because that that low-paid essay is, is, you know, I think a cornerstone for a lot of people's classwork. But, I mean, you said it's really liberating to help your students get to that point where they can just speak the truth, right? And sometimes it's funny and sometimes it's not. And it's a lot. How do you work that through? Because, I mean, you've been teaching for a really long time. I have been teaching a long time. <laughs> It's it's like thinking about my first book being published 15 years ago. I don't almost want to count how many years, but it's always enjoyable. Yeah. You know, everyone's always writing something fresh and interesting. Mm-hmm. And that to me is part of the fun of nonfiction mm-hmm. because everyone has their story. I, I kind of think nonfiction is a way to push against, you know, AI and chat GPT. I mean, yeah, we can have we can have the bots write our story, but why would we want that? We we want actually. And I think people need to take, you know, the sense of agency over their own words and the way they describe their own lives. Agency and also just genuine point of view. Like I use AI when we're doing transcripts for the show because, you know, it's it's a tool. But yeah, in terms of storytelling, it's 
you know, it's like when you read something that you know has soul and something that doesn't. And some writers are very cold and very contained, and that's great, and that's what they do. And sometimes people are trying to, they don't quite have the control that it takes, right? Yeah. To deliver that kind of POV. And then there are just people who are just, you know, giant messy hearts, which in its own way can be a relief and sometimes harder to do than the very, very controlled stuff. So that finding that POV, like it's when you're a reader and you know it when you see it, I'm assuming it's like when you're a writer, you know it when it, you just know it when you see that's it. That's absolutely true. Yeah. And that's true in teaching. I mean, one of the books I like to teach is Heavy by Jesse Lehman. Love that book. It is. Love such, that book. It's so brilliant. It's such an important book. And it teaches so brilliantly as well because students really see the, the power of that perspective and also the epistolary form of, okay, I'm going to address this and what is involved in using that particular structure and how it's not, how the story uh, is not all about content. Because right. sometimes people just want to say, oh, this is what happened. It's, this is awful. You know, what happened? But it's not all about that. A lot of mm-hmm. it is about how we write our own story. I'm risking a little bit of duplication because you sort of answered this earlier, but I'm still kind of curious. Was the structural change the biggest surprise for you? Or did you just suddenly realize that you were just in an entirely different place as you were writing even the first draft of this book? I mean, again, we're talking about a 15-year gap with a novel and a short story collection in between your memoirs, right? So is there something you took from writing Stealing Buddha's Dinner? that you need it for Owner of a Lonely Heart? Or are they just two separate pieces because they're two separate moments in your existence? I think of these books as completely different because I wrote them in very different ways. And I felt like I was being so kind of careful with uh, Stealing Buddha's Dinner. And with this book, with Owner of a Lonely Heart, because I wrote quite a bit of it revised so intently during the pandemic lockdown. A lot of it was kind of fueled by the sense of, I don't care anymore about anything. I'm just going to do whatever the hell I want. That means I'm just going to write whatever I want. And I'm just, I'm at home and time is, you know, amorphous. I'm just going to write this as I want to write this kind of for myself, which I've never done before. And it was kind of liberating not to have a real reason for writing it okay but even with the even with pioneer girl the novel and the story collection short girls you didn't feel like you were just doing the work for you i mean i can see how a memoir feels really different intellectually as the writer but i'm having a moment where i'm like yeah but with fiction don't you have a little more freedom i mean you're kind of making it all up as you go right Yeah, but see, for my relationship with fiction, with novels, is that when I'm writing them or when I need I need them to have a purpose. I'm not going to write a novel or story that's just for me and put it away. I know that there are people who do that, that's great. But I feel like that is more my relationship with nonfiction, which is I'm I have, you know, written many nonfiction pieces that no one will ever see. Mm -hmm. No one needs to see, frankly, but I needed to write them for whatever reason in order to get somewhere else. No, I get that. I absolutely get. How do you see the evolution of your own work? I think the evolution of my nonfiction is related to the evolution of memoir in the United States. Okay. Okay. As in like 15, 20 years ago, 
the way a memoir was read, written, and thought about is so different from the way it is today. The drive for a confession and narrative, that was, I think of that as kind of 20 years ago. In a way, we weren't even thinking so much about, you know, craft and ethics and permission and research and citation and all the things that, that people really think about more now because we can think of them, our work more as essayistic, you know. And so I think that that evolution has been really important for me to, to think about how when we write nonfiction, we're also writing about the writing of nonfiction. We are engaging with that act of looking back and remembering, which is powerful, you know, which is me thinking about my relationship with my mother is, I hope readers also thinking about, wow, how is my relationship with my mother or the mother figures in my life? How has that changed? You know, how have I been the one changing? Which in a way brings me to refugee and that word. I frequently use it sort of in ways that people, other people would consider out of context, right? Like, I mean, I'll joke about being a refugee from New England. It's like, yeah, I'm good. Thanks. <laughs> right. It's a huge part of who I am. And, you know, I have spent tons of time there, but I'm not going to be living there full time again, as far as I can tell. And it's partially a joke and it's partially a poke, you mm-hmm. know, because the way we use the word refugee and how we intend it to mean and, and the ways it changes and whatnot. And you literally, though, went to your first stop was a U.S. camp in Guam. Yeah, a refugee camp in Guam. And then you ended up in Arkansas. We were. <laughs> we went first to a refugee camp in the Philippines. Oh, in the Philippines. OK. And Guam and then in Arkansas. And I mean, and then ultimately in Michigan, which became home. And is it this book or is it? Stealing Buddha's Dinner, where your dad had a choice of like California, Arkansas, and Michigan. And your grandmother was like, no, I once knew someone whose child went to college in Michigan. So that's where we're going. Was that? Yeah, that's how we ended up in Michigan. (laughs) I mean, I could have ended up in California, but no, it was like, grandma was like, nope. And you and I both come from families where grandmas, they get to drive. Grandma's drive. Great grandma's drive. I come from a very long line on both sides of my family, actually, where, you know, my grandma's and my great grandma's had something to say, which. Yes. And, you know, it turned out that my grandmother made all the significant decisions of, you know, that that governed our lives, where we're going to live, you know, what my birthday was. (laughs) Getting out of Saigon. All those major decisions. Yeah. My grandmother. But I love that for you. I mean, it makes for a great read. It really does. Learning who your grandmother really is. And I mean, she really, she did save you guys. She really like the idea that she was the one who was like, we have to go. We can't wait anymore. We really have to go. It seems like your dad took that much more seriously than anything any of his brothers or his friends were saying. Yeah. Like it really was your grandmother saying, no, we have to leave. Yes. I think about this a lot. You know, the the urgency urgency of it. Like if somebody said that to you, would you believe them? Would you know? Would you be like, okay, let's let's leave our country and not have any idea where we're going. And because I was a baby and I don't have, you know, any experience of what they went through, I always have felt kind of like a a secondhand refugee. Yeah, I get in a weird it. way, like I, I have the the recollections of it, but not the experience. And I think that is, 
you know, part of what it means to be a, this sort of Gen X, one and a half generation uh, immigrant refugee that I am is knowing but not knowing. And that's sort of in between space, I feel like it's just like where, that's where I am. That's where I have always been sort of in between, like middle child, you know, sitting in the middle seat in the back seat of the car. You know, I'm always, that's where I am. And it gives you the chance, though, to look in every direction, to forward and back at the same time. Yeah, I'm just thinking about this as you said it. I think if my grandmother, if my mother's mother said it, yeah, I think I'd be out the door and say, there, there are certain people where you're just like, mm, yeah. And then I've got other people in my life where I'm like, mm, not so much. I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, but I think you're overreacting. The whole thing about refugee status, right? It's it's a label that gets applied. It is in some ways dehumanizing that you become sort of the word that frustrates me, right? Like, have you ever read Dina Nayari's The Good Refugee? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love that book. And she kind of gets to the heart of the thing where she's like, well, you know, what do you expect? Like, we're all traumatized. I just, I do wish more people would read that. is a complicated word that for a lot of people is suffused with shame. Yeah. And being very self-conscious about that status. I mean, for a long time, uh, I would uh. never say I was a refugee. I would say I was an immigrant. It would save me a lot of trouble. It would save me a lot of questions. The idea of, of immigrant is you know, very quote-unquote normal in the United States. Refugee is not. It is outside. It is uh, pointing blame. The idea, too, that you have to choose a word to define your own experience because other people might be uncomfortable is still really wild to me. And I think that's my... (laughs) Yeah, like, I mean, I I was born in Boston and, you know, it's just there are certain assumptions that I always made, even as a child, and maybe they weren't always right. And sometimes I had to lead with my chin a little bit before I discovered that. But it's bringing me to your choice about your name, right? Like you have written three other books under your birth name. And, you know, anyone can go buy them. And it's not, it's not like a secret or anything else. But you chose a new byline for this book. And and I totally get why you did it, but I I really do want to talk about it with you. And I sort of all of this has been leading up to this. I mean, I obviously have not chosen to do what you did, right? Like people spell my name a thousand times a day, which is kind of funny because it's not that difficult. But it really isn't. You <laughs> yeah, you really but Beth, right? And I also part of me is kind of giggling a little bit because my parents apparently almost named me Elizabeth and then decided at the last minute they were like, nah, no, that's okay. And I'm pretty sure I would have been a Liz, not a Beth. You understand where I'm going with this. It's just, it's like the universal name, right? Like it's one of those names where everyone knows someone in a generation Mm -hmm. who has some derivative of either Margaret or Elizabeth as a name. But can we talk about the decision you made to, to change not just your byline, but in a way, a piece of your identity? Yeah, I had always wanted to change my name. Yeah. The earliest moments of being a child going to school. You yeah. know, first roll call, you know, oh, oh, yeah. I'd love to change my name, but I was never allowed to. You're right. And I think more than not being allowed to, I was always told that it was a bad thing to even consider that it was a betrayal of culture and heritage mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. to deal with it. So I did. I mean, I, yeah. I 
published books under my birth name, but it didn't fix anything for me. Like I was, I was never comfortable with it. And so it was a long process of deciding what I was going to do for myself versus what I was going to do for people. And really changing my name to Beth was something I was not doing for other people. I was doing that for myself. And it was not to make other people comfortable. It was to make myself com- comfortable so I wouldn't have to explain things to people, which I would have to do all the time. And I could just be anonymous, which is really a, my favorite thing to go unnoticed <laughs> so that nobody's like asking me all these follow-up questions about like who I am or where I'm from. I just don't get those questions. You know, Beth. And life is absolutely easier. And I know that a lot of people think that it's kind of a kappa. But I think of it as a choice, a deliberate personal choice to give myself some space and freedom. But I think ultimately it comes back to what's your name? My mother went by Irene for a number of years and I was like, ooh, you are not an Irene. And one of my Taiwanese uncles chose Nelson. As it, um, Classic. Like, I, I'm also, well, I'm also sort of dating them because you can tell like when they were ah. choosing their names, right? And now everyone goes by their name name, but I, you know, it's. Like, I remember someone coming up to me after my mother's memorial service and saying, well, your mother's name was always Chicago to me. And I'm like, I know you think that's a cute joke, but dude, you're joking about my dead mother's name. Can we not do that right now? It was wild. It is so wild what people think is okay to say, you know, in wild circumstances. And I'm just like, hi, hi, do I even remember who you are and why are you making a joke about my dead mother? I mean, I've heard some of the some absolutely horrible things about my own name, about other people's names. And people do feel free to have all their opinions about it. I kind of think, so a theory, a little personal theory, in the future, in the future, people will just change their names anytime they want. And because when I think about it, I think it's really strange, actually, that we keep a name that somebody else gave us when we were, you know, babies, and we just stick with it because, you know, we're used to it. What if we don't like them, those names? What if we just never feel like I'm like Irene or Nelson? What's the harm of choosing another name? What if we chose five or six different names over life? You know, I might outgrow Beth and want to be somebody else. If I had chosen when I was, you know, nine years old, I'd be Tiffany. (laughs) Wait, with an I or a Y? Oh, with a Y. I mean, (laughs) you know, I had to ask. Come on. You know, I had to ask. When we're nine, exactly. we do not make great decisions when exactly. we're nine. Exactly. So then I would have to change that again because I definitely don't feel like a Tiffany right now. Maybe Tiffany with an eye. <laughs> but yeah, names, man. Like names, they They're matter. Fraud. They no, matter. People, people always say they don't matter, but they actually matter. They do. They do. So they much. do. I mean, it's how you experience the world. And like, I mean, honestly, I can be sitting in jury duty in New York. And- hear the pot. I'm like, yeah, that's me. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I think you're looking for me. And they're like, yeah, I guess I (laughs) I got really good at that. Knowing exactly when someone was talking to me, but they didn't want to say my name. Yes. Yeah. You get good. You get really good at figuring out how to navigate this space. It's an incredibly fraught issue because it gets to our feelings about our families, our origins, our sense of obligation to other people what we accept for ourselves, what we want for ourselves. When you say obligation, are you talking about family obligation? What obligation? Yeah, family obligation and cultural obligation. Well, that was one of the things too, when I was reading Owner of a Lonely Heart, you said people who were giving you guff about changing your name 
weren't really Vietnamese Americans. But it was people outside of the community who were saying, I would never do that. And I would da da da. And I'm thinking, well, you don't actually have to. <laughs> like, this is just not something that, you know, I'm delighted when a guy like Hua Xu can write under his own byline for the New Yorker. Like, that just pleases me to no end because it wouldn't have been that long ago that maybe he would have felt like he had to write under Henry or something. You know, I mean, people make choices all the time. I just think it would be great if, you know, we could make those choices. <laughs> People didn't necessarily feel like they had to weigh in. Exactly. I mean, yeah, you and I are talking about it, but you understand what I'm saying. It's just like, wait, you get an opinion? <laughs> hmm. And, you know, the opinion that somebody has about my name, they they can just keep it to themselves. Yeah. You know I mean? like, as That's we, a whole separate conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but historically, um, in my experience, they don't. Yeah. And I think it's only extremely recently that there has been, you know, a widespread sense of consciousness about the respect that we should give to people's names and pronouncing them correctly and not asking people to go by initials or whatever and just really having a sense of like okay this is your name i'm going to pronounce it the way you pronounce it and call you what you want to be called and that is the way it should be without commentary would you ever bother doing the paperwork though to change your name legally or is that just Oh, it's too much paperwork. Yeah, that's what I that's what I've heard is it's just an outrageous amount of paperwork. And yeah, I wouldn't and also I don't I don't dislike my name or anything. I actually love having a pen name. Mm-hmm. And it's many 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 writers have, have pen names. Oh. I'm always learning about new ones. And it's always fascinating to me like, oh, that person's name was actually Something else. I love it. Yeah, I, I can think of, you know, because when people dial into Zooms, it's like, oh, hi, let's, yeah. let's, your name, it matters. It really, really matters. And that is why I think it's good for people to be able to take control over that, mm-hmm. to decide what their name is going to be and what, what they should be called. And it's very easy for, for the rest of us to just learn it and respect it. Yeah, right. It's, 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 it's really not, not that hard. But speaking of names, can we talk about some of the writers? who've made you Beth Wynn writer? Because it's a cool list. It's a really cool. I mean, we got to start with Laura Ingalls Wilder, right? You know I'm going to make you talk about it a tiny bit. The difficult thing getting older is looking back at the books that actually, you know, determined who mm-hmm. you were as a person yeah. and realizing how messed up they were. Oh, and- come on. Harriet the Spy? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> There was a formative book for Harry just by a formative Same, book. same, absolutely. But, you know, at the same time, and like oh, yeah. the racism in the Laura Ingle Wilder, like I wanted a sod house really badly. And now I go back and look at those books and I'm like, oh, it's, we didn't know what we didn't know. Not know. And it is important to look back and to think about, oh, what we didn't know. And that's it. I think that is part of the process of you know, writing and thinking and just being a better person is acknowledging what we didn't know and figuring out all the, the ways that, that we were influenced, perhaps negatively. And pretty much, all, you know, all of all the things I read when I was young, anybody would say that they're problematic. Yeah, of course they are. I mean, they were like from many, many years ago. But it, we can still learn from them, for one thing. And we can also you know, sharpen our own perspective, uh, context, and what it means to change our minds. I think, I feel like giving ourselves that space to change our minds and to grow is, um, 
is underrated. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're not carved from stone, man. We are just not carved from stone. But I am going to keep coming back to this. Let's talk about other writers first. Yeah, Harry the Spy. Oh, my God. Uh, (laughs) uh, The Little House of Prairie books. I loved um, the Ramona Quimby books. Yeah, yeah. They're not, they're not, I mean, they actually, they're, they're still quite a bit problematic in there, but that, that's problematic in those books. But one of the, the most interesting shifts for me was realizing that I was identifying less with the children and more with the parents of these books. Oh, that's trippy. Yeah. Okay. And being like, wait a minute, I'm not Ramona anymore. I'm her sad mom. <laughs> but probably, I mean, I mean, undoubtedly the most important book for me. And I think for a lot of Asian American writers uh, is the Woman Warrior. Yeah, without a doubt, without a doubt. The you know the innovations in that book are still every bit as exciting and relevant today as they were back then. So that was a really important book to me. And a lot of the literature that I read was was fiction. Uh, but things like I think a lot about the Age of Innocence by Edith, really important book to me. Howard's End is a really significant book in terms of like my thinking about characterization and emotion. And so I think sometimes like there's a, a sense of restraint, emotional restraint in Owner of a Lonely Heart that is very purposeful. It's not, you know, wildly emotional. I, I really wanted to keep that emotion to like just like behind, you know, a, a sort of translucent fence, I guess, so that you could feel it, but not, you know, be overcome by it. Having said that, though, people keep telling me that they're they're crying a lot when they read this book. <laughs> I can see that. I can totally see that. The beauty of Owner of a Lonely Heart, I think, too, is this universal who am I? Where am I? Where did I come from? What are the words to describe myself? Like, this is stuff that everyone wrestles with, right? Whether or not you have, you know, a mom, mom or mother. Like, I do think, you know, there's a tendency sometimes for folks to say, well, I don't share a lot. Like you and I get to have a different conversation, right? Because even though we're not the exact same kind of Asian American, right? We're both like, there is some overlap when you're Asian American, but there's so much more here. Like there's a level, obviously, if you're Asian American, there's a level. If you're not, and I think there's something to be said for that, right? I mean, at least. I mean, as a reader, for me, I just I believe that there are lots of different things happening in this book for lots of different kinds of readers. I mean, I hope so because when I think about my most favorite books or the books that I reread the most, I think about how little I have in common with those characters. I mean, I Edith Wharton. Yeah, nothing in common with anybody. <laughs> like, not at all. <laughs> But I feel very connected to them. Yeah. And I mean, I would say when you were saying this, you know, um, about having an open heart, I was thinking that about how one of the questions that drove this book in the back of my mind was, what is wrong with me? Like, why am I? (laughs) And behind that, like, why am I like this? You are so Gen X. You are so Gen X. (laughs) Yes. Okay. I am Gen X. This is a good thing. This is not a bad thing, but I am having a moment where I'm like, my people. So like happy, proud to be Gen X. I mean, it's not like I can do anything about it, but yeah, right. the condition of being Gen X is that, you know, there's like a, there's like a lot of self-hatred and there's a constant looking back and wondering like, what did we live through? 
you know. Okay, so here's the thing. I remember reading that in the book, and I remember thinking, well, it wasn't so much self-hatred for me as it was I was raised by wolves. Like, total straight up, very pretty wolves, but raised by wolves. I mean, the stuff that, like... Like the stuff that we were allowed to do when we were small, like there is just no way. There is no way that a millennial parent is going to let their kid do right. that. Like, there's just no way. I mean, when I think of all of the times, like we would just, especially in the summer, like if we didn't have something to do, you, like you go out and you play until we had a bell that mom, oh. and that was like when we could come home. <laughs> oh, like, we go outside, go run around. <laughs> like, so I mean, raised by wolves completely. I'm like, hi. I mean, because of that, I do feel that Gen X people have a different relationship of with time, a different concept of time, because we knew what life was like. Mm -hmm. We were so monitored, and so time would could stretch out, and it could also you know collapse in different ways. Yeah, and so I feel like we have that in us, and then because there's such a huge gulf between how we lived before technology, like our storytelling. It's, it's changed and different. Yeah. So it's like, now it's like, you know, I'm not that old, I feel like, but I feel like I'm like, gather around kids when I tell you about how I used to go to a payphone to check my messages. Yeah, <laughs> yeah all of that. My landline phone. Yeah, it's trippy. It really, like, when I think back on it, because we are sort of the last generation who straddled, you know, <laughs> we had no native technology. We had a phone on the wall. <laughs> Yeah. And in our house, we had a pantry that my brother and I would use as a phone booth. And there was always constantly a phone cord running into And My mother's just like, please, can I just get into the pantry? We also, though, did not have the language. Yeah, we didn't. We We didn't have the language to, no one ever said, talked about trauma, for instance. We didn't Mm -hmm. talk about racism. We didn't talk about any of that stuff. We just experienced it all without Mm -hmm. knowing how to say what it was or what it felt like. And so now, you know, I'm looking back at my former self and being like, oh, look at, look at all the feelings she went through that she couldn't name. And right. she just had to keep it all to herself. Like in the book, I talk about having to, to go watch Miss Saigon. Yeah. Yeah. How horrible it was, um, but I didn't yeah. know how to talk about it. So I just kept it to myself all these years. And I'm just going to say, as a person who is technically Eurasian, you can play Eurasian without scotch taping your eyelids or painting your skin yellow. I just, it's possible. I'm just, I'm all for artistic expression, but really, you know, there are Eurasians who, you know, maybe not look fully Asian and you don't have to use scotch tape and yellow cosmetics. And I swear that's just an aesthetic choice that maybe people don't need to make anymore. I just, I remember seeing that. And people are like, I mean, I didn't, please, I, I will totally admit I have not seen Miss Saigon and I'm good. Thanks. I'm good. You are. You don't, I don't need to see a piece of art or I, I just, I don't, I'm good. But the way that was covered and it was like, well, here's this artistic choice and here's this venerated actor making an artistic choice. And I'm like, even adolescent me was judging him. And in fact, I continue to judge him to this day um, and not favorably. <laughs> Because really, I mean, it's like you can be an actor and use words and you can (laughs) you can do all sorts of stuff that doesn't involve, you know, cosmetics and tape in awkward places. Like, What is with the scotch tape? Like, let's not do that. (laughs) There's a lot. (laughs) There's a lot. And it's 238 pages. This is not a huge 
It is a compressed nice book, book, but you cover a lot of ground. I, you know, the probably the another book that really is a source of inspiration for me mm-hmm. is Julia Tsuka's novel "When the Emperor Was Divine." Oh, I love that book. Love that I book. love that. It's book. So hot. It's, I, I love, love how it. every sentence is so clear and perfect and precise, and it's a very compressed book. Have you yeah, had a chance to read The Swimmers yet? Yes. Last I love I love all of her work. I mean her yeah, it's all it's all amazing. But the swimmers too, where she does that shift when you get out of the pool and you're oh, more, yeah. spending more time with Alice and it's just it's like just, I think she does that in three sentences. It's, it's genius. And I I mean I I feel very moved by that. And mm-hmm. those I mean her style was uh because I've read all of her work, I think it was it was very emotionally important to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I love this idea of trying to capture feeling and time in as compressed a way as possible, in as few words as possible. So every time I revised the work, it would get, I would pare it down more and more and be like, okay, I don't need this word. Even when the whole book was done and I had mm-hmm. to read the whole thing for the audio version, mm-hmm. I had to do that. It was so painful because I kept realizing all the words that I could have cut. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, this, I just really needed more. It went through so many rounds of edits. So many edits. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I could have just kept going until it was shorter and shorter. I'm sure that's, you know, strange, obsessive thinking. But I really wanted to get into that space of just, you know, intense, you know, an intense moment, intense sentence. It works really, really well in this book like without a doubt it really really works i think not just for the intensity that you just described but also honestly for the intimacy sometimes it's easy to maintain a distance if you've got a lot more on the page in front of you where you can just sort of step back and be like oh that's a very pretty sentence and i love pretty i'm i'm good with pretty sentences but sometimes you need to let the thing speak for itself. And especially when we didn't have the language for the emotion mm-hmm. or the experience, like it's even more important to be able to hand that experience and that emotion over to the reader and just be like, yeah, actually, <laughs> you think you know what it was like, but by the way. <laughs> so we'll see where it goes. And also there's a whole nother conversation to be had about the legacy of the Vietnam War, which feels like at this point it was a million years ago. And, you know, we're taping this after Daniel Ellsberg has just died. And, like, you and I definitely grew up in the shadow of that, not just as an intellectual exercise or a historical moment, but there was a lot of, you know, day-to-day reality um, for us as tiny Americans who look the way we do. (laughs) It was a lot. lot It was a lot. It was a lot. And a lot of that reality, I think, for... Asian Americans of a of this generation was listening and observing, but not feeling like it was okay to add to the conversation just yet because it didn't feel safe. Yeah. And I think for a lot of my life, I just didn't feel safe mm-hmm. speaking up or saying, you know, whatever I needed to say. Not that I necessarily thought that violence would happen, although that's <laughs> certainly possible. Yeah. Um, but that I thought that no one would listen. Whatever I would have to say would never matter. As an example, just recently, I was with kids on a train. I took them on a train trip from, you know, to the up to the Grand Canyon. Oh, that's adorable. And 
this person photographer came through the train trying to taking everyone's pictures, you know, family pictures, couples pictures, but she didn't take one of me and my kids. It was fascinating because I didn't say anything. I just sat there. And I, and I was like, I wonder if she's going to offer to take our picture because she took offered to take yeah, it. Yeah. And then at some point I was like, she's not, I know she's not going to say anything. And she didn't, she just kind of went by. And then the conductor came by and was talking to everybody about, you know, where are you getting up? You know, what are you going to do when you get off the train and blah, blah. And she didn't talk to us either. And I was like, wow, there are times I can still feel, you know, completely invisible and, you know, unheard. And I can just sit here and, and not be anybody in somebody else's, you know, imagination or, or line of vision. And you can also write a book. <laughs> Meanwhile, I mean, it's all in my mind. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. Cause I, I mean, I did take sort of a slightly opposite tack to you. And I, like I said, I, I led with my chin a lot, especially when I was younger. <laughs> I had things to say about history. Every time I did that, I would get in so much trouble though. Yeah. And it was worth it. It was worth it. It was so worth I like, I can't even like, I'm just kind of laughing about some of the stuff that maybe I got myself into because you know what? It was always worth it. Even in the moment when I thought, oh, I probably shouldn't. <laughs> it no, was still I, worth it. I mean, I wish I had. Yeah, I, I just, I think we have, to, I think we each have to choose sort of what we're physically comfortable with. I don't, I don't think there's a one size fits all for the kind of stuff that we're talking about, but I think if you have something to say, sometimes you can do it and other times you can't. And we just have to keep trying. I think that's ultimately is we have to keep trying. We just have to. That's know. true. And realizing like what, what we need to do in a moment. Cause yeah. for many years, I, I just thought of myself as somebody who was just not strong enough, you know, just not, I'm just like not a strong person. I can't, I'm not doing enough. I'm not doing what I should be doing. Cause I, I don't have the strength, but I think that maybe it was just a different form of strength. That's what I'm trying to think of it as now. I think also we wouldn't have gotten this book if that had been true. I think you don't put everything out in the world the way you do in this book, right? If you're just kind of hanging out in the corner going, huh, I think I'll write a book sometime. It's a theory. It's just a theory. <laughs> You no, know, that's a good point. Actually, very good point because I mean, you could have written a novel where everything is very thinly disguised, and not to say that isn't its own journey writing that kind of book too. I mean, there are people. Autofiction is not an easy thing to do, but you did ultimately say, "Here's my life, and this yeah. is where the change has happened, and this is what the difference is." And it's a pretty great read. Oh, it's thank really you. It's. Read. I mean, writing is so hard. It is. <laughs> it is so difficult and to return to it over and over again every time I read somebody else's work I'm just in awe thinking about how much time and work they put into it and what a gift it is to get to read somebody else's you know thoughts and their like the the choices the, the linguistic choices that they made mm -hmm. yeah language matters yeah language matters so I mean to get to participate in it is just a joy actually all right. That seems like a really good place to end. And of course, I knew this would happen and we're bumping up against time because that's just what happens here. And also, I can't stop staring at your piano pillow. And I'm afraid <laughs> that I'm just going to keep thinking about your piano pillow because that is awesome. That is every office should have a piano pillow. It really should. You know, 
Beth Wynn, thank you so much. Owner of a Lonely Heart is out now. Thank you. Hello, readers. It's time for another TBR Top Off. We're going to recommend a couple of fantastic books when you come in to pick up your copy of Owner of a Lonely Heart. I'm Mark coming to you from my Barnes & Noble in Cincinnati, and I am joined by my book buddy, Jamie. Hello, Jamie. Hi, Mark. I'm Jamie. I'm coming to you from Leewood, Kansas. So we're going to go ahead and kick things off. Jamie, why don't you go ahead and get us started? So if you are looking for um, uh, more stories centered around the voices of refugees, I'm going to squeeze in a two-for-one recommendation, and that's a pair of fantastic novels by the Pulitzer Prize-winning Vietnamese-American novelist Viet Thanh Nguyen. The first is The Sympathizer, which won the Pulitzer, and the second book in the series is The Committed, and that's a sequel which takes place almost immediately after the events of the first book. So in picking up these novels, and I'm going to note, too, that they were published almost exactly 40 years after the fall of Saigon, uh, you're going to identify a lot of the same themes of identity and loyalty and cultural displacement, all told from a Vietnamese perspective, which is very different from the characterizations of the war um, from the American perspective that's traditionally been seen in popular movies like Platoon or Apocalypse Now in the States. The protagonist of the story is a man who is of two faces and two minds. He says he's unnamed, our narrator. We never do learn his name. He's half French, half Vietnamese, a captain in the Southern Army who is also a double agent, a mole spying for the North. And he becomes an American refugee after the Northern Army captures Saigon, and he escapes in that mass evacuation of tens of thousands of people from the city. Once he's in Los Angeles, he continues to work as a spy, though, sending intelligence to his handler about the refugee community's political activities and their plans to return to Vietnam, despite their loss of power and of status. Nguyen's style is unlike most books you've ever read. It is not just intellectually and philosophically impressive. It's filled with politics and references to art and history, and it is so intricate and intense. Um, part of what's really impressive is the way he navigates the loads of contradictions in his narrator's story, sometimes to a degree that becomes absurd and almost like darkly comic, given the topic. Uh, he's telling this entire story as a flashback while he's sitting in a re-education camp being forced to confess his crimes. But all the contradictions and dualities and competing loyalties in his life that he's trying to use to sort of explain himself in this confession are really clouding the issue too much for his captors. And they they feel he's unacceptably nuanced. And uh, so he keeps having to rewrite his own history to make it fit their narrative. And when we leave him at the end of the first book, he's on a boat as a refugee again. And so the second book takes him to 1980s France. He's grappling with the cruelty of the re-education camp still and the racism and continuing foreignness of his uniquely post-war Vietnamese experience in France, uh, which his newfound, very left-leaning French friends tended to still into something cerebral and exotic for them to discuss at parties. Obviously, the themes of duality from the first book are going to continue here because he is both Vietnamese and French by birth. And um, obviously, the French colonization of Vietnam causes even more conflict in his mind. And he's constantly trying to parse his own commitments to his ideals, his blood brothers, his home country, and to his anger. 
Um, and so while you get lots of cool 1980s intellectual Parisian ideas, you also still get that very specific refugee voice that speaks to people who are left to fend for themselves on the fringes. And in his case, he begins dealing drugs, um, often to those same cool Parisian intellectuals that he's hanging out with. And that's what the action of this book is. The second book is about. It's about him plotting his new, very dangerous future, all while trying to reconcile the contradictions of his past over the course of these two books. And he's just a fascinating and extremely nuanced character. And that combined with the intellectually unmatched writing style and thrillerish plot of that second novel make these a fantastic one-two punch. And uh, I'm also going to point out that there is a streaming service coming very soon. So this is a timely pick. Again, that's two books, The Sympathizer and The Committed by Viet Thanh Nguyen. Mark? Uh, fantastic picks. Uh, no surprise. I think you're right, though, that the two of them really being read almost in one experience is a great way to go. Uh, they're both equally fantastic, but I like the idea of I if I had read them back to back, I think my experience would have been even more charged. So nice pick. Well, I chose something a little bit different, but in the same vein theme-wise, uh, I chose a book called Time as a Mother by the Vietnamese-American poet Ocean Vuong. I have spoken about Ocean before on this podcast, and I will do so until my dying day. He is a Zen master of language. Uh, his poetry is, it, it caresses and it sings. And if you get a chance to hear him speak, my God, his voice, I think, could probably call him a volcano. It's so gentle and kind and lovely, and that comes out in his uh, writing as well. This is a superb collection. It just came out in paperback. It speaks to memory and grief and family, culture and love and life. I love it so much. There's not a missed word in this collection. These poems were collected after the passing of Ocean's uh, mother, and he uses time and pain and heart to articulate his own personal experiences as a child of an immigrant. But he can also connect any reader to their own experiences. It's just this great magic trick that is done so beautifully in his hands. It's gentle and also seething and angry and warm and just miraculous. I think his respect for and curiosity of language allows for some very awe-inspiring lines. I think, again, the gentleness of his voice is very singular. And I think readers who are looking to expand their knowledge base after Owner of a Lonely Heart can do so through poetry in this lovely way. So please check out uh, Time is a Mother by Ocean Vuong. But guess what? That's all we have for today. Thank you so much for tuning in to Port Over. Uh, please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow us on our socials at Barnes & Noble. I'm Mark. You can follow my home store at BN Westchester. Jamie, where can we find you? You can follow my home store at BN Leewood KS. And we can follow your cat to the ends of the <laughs> earth. Yeah. Uh, Love it. Alfie. Uh, Alfie's the best. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Happy reading. See ya. Bye. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.